Hello and welcome to Laid Back Lush. I'm Michael. I am Gabe. And today we are talking about Sherry. If you haven't done so already, please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and other uh, things that we have not gotten yet. But those are the two. Uh, <laughs> if you're listening from the future, you just have to know what other things we're on. Because it'll likely be at Laid Back Lush, which yes. you can search, please. Give us a follow. Give us a, a shout out if you would like to. Um, and or if, if you wouldn't like to, just, if you, just do just it. Just subject your family members, your friends, even if they don't care, just well, tell them about it. You know, you could just <laughs> use us as your secret wine source, or mm. we could become a topic of conversation. We could bring, you know, this this could be an icebreaker in uh, in conversations that We're you starting might... a multi-level marketing network. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But please do follow us. Please send us messages. We love questions. We love suggestions. Even if those suggestions are just colorful, they're also fun to read. Yes. So talking about Sherry, this will be kind of a longer episode. So uh, we we are aware of that. We know that you guys have stuck out with us for a couple of longer episodes. Yeah, quite a few in a row. (laughs) But we are going to be having a shorter episode this next time. We will be talking about orange wine. Mm Mm-hmm which, if you didn't know, is also considered the wine of Zeus. It is a very interesting thing to discuss, and Gabe already has the bottle ready, so we'll be I able to, to do that, and it'll be a lot of fun. It's from a Virginia producer. I will leave the rest to your imagination a until next teaser. time. Yes. I like it. All right, so Sherry Production. Sherry is primarily and only produced in Spain. They Correct. did try for a little bit. In other countries before 19, oh gosh, what was it? It was like 19... That I don't know. I think it was 1933 is when the first council was formed in order to say, hey. Stop that. Stop that. Stop (laughs) trying to say it's Sherry. It's not Sherry. It's not Sherry (laughs) unless it's from one of three cities. So what do we know about Sherry? All right. So just going into this episode, we are very white and... I can kind of pronounce Spanish words in the way that people from South America who speak Spanish typically pronounce them. Spain kind of has its own dialect since it's the original place. I'm not even going to try and imitate it. So please forgive me if you're Spanish and you listen to this episode. The C being replaced with more of a TH sound in Andalusia is is kind of throwing me off. Yeah. So just forgive us going into this for all the pronunciation errors we are about to make. And again, (laughs) uh, as I stated in our many french episodes if you do know how to pronounce these correctly send us the pronunciations absolutely on one of our various social accounts so what is sherry sherry as michael just said is only grown in a handful of towns primarily it is going to be coming from jerez de la frontera which is again in spain and i believe that is the frontier of sherry as what the the name means that would that would make sense um it must be matured in the city limits of Jerez, or it can also be matured in the towns of San Lucar de Barrameda, which is up towards the north. Yes. Or El Puerto de Santa Maria, down towards the south. So these are the only three places that sherry can be matured, produced, what have you. And we will be getting into what that means for sherry here in a second, because that's very important to this style of wine. These places have a hot Mediterranean climate. So if you remember from our climate episode, that means long, hot, very hot, in Spain in particular, dry summers. That also means low rainfall. That is where the Albariza soils come into play. 
These are very high chalk content soils, kind of similar to what you will find in Champagne. However, these soils are much deeper than mm-hmm. Champagne's soils. Now, I don't think we really went into this in our climate episode, but deeper soils are very good in these kinds of climates because that means you have more of a water table at play. Yeah. And a water table that will last through a very long, hot, dry Mediterranean summer. Grapes like abuse, but they need some material in order to actually make it work. Yes, exactly. So they're good for water retention. And during the summer, the top layer of the soil forms a very hard crust. And that actually helps even more with keeping the water from evaporating out of the soil because of that hard crust. It can also, because of the color, it helps reflect some sunlight back into the grapes It's hot enough in this climate to where that's not necessary at all for these grapes to ripen, but it is kind of an added bonus just to aid the photosynthesis. So also during winter, something interesting that they do is after they harvest the grapes, they'll actually till the soil in a way. They'll make these basically trenches in between the grapevines and let rainfall get in there as much as it possibly will Mm. because winter months in spain are much wetter than the summer months so they do that in order to turn the entire surface into basically one giant sham wow yes and let it just soak in Mm -hmm. to preserve for the summer months and they smooth it back out when the growing season starts so it'll form Uh, that hard crust again because otherwise a lot of that would evaporate as opposed to just forming that hard crust exactly interesting So what sort of grapes are we talking about in the production of sherry? So our primary grape for the vast majority, actually I think all dry sherries to my knowledge, is going to be your Palomino grape. Palomino is a low-acid grape. It has very little varietal character. It's, It's not suitable for like what, say, Chardonnay is suitable for. It's not that kind of grape. That is actually very desirable in sherry production because the Solera process really is what shapes these wines, and that's the process that you want to be shaping these wines. You don't really want a lot of varietal character. It's a white grape, so these are going to be white wines. Well, technically speaking, they're going to be white wines. Uh, Depending on the style, they can be brown, but uh, that's from the aging process more than the grape itself. We also, if you remember from our dessert wine episode, we have our Pedro Jimenez, which mm, mm. Uh, also has very little character. It does have uh, thick skin, so it's good for sun drying. That is kind of what helps those grapes be able to... Uh, oh, you mean thin skins? Thin skins, yes. Sorry. That is what helps it to be able to uh, dry out in the sun well. If I'm not mistaken, that's actually what they do for the Pedro Jimenez, is they allow it to dry out from the sun in order to concentrate it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Basically, it's to concentrate the sugars, so that way you're making a sweet wine before you fortify it. Also, so legally speaking, again, all of these grapes must come from the town of Jerez or these other two towns that they're grown in. PX, Pedro Jimenez, most of these grapes actually come from another place called Montilla uh, Moriles. And it's kind of an exception to sherry regulations because the growing conditions are better in that area for Mm. Pedro Jimenez grapes. Then we have our Muscat of Alexandria, very small amount of the plantings overall. I don't know the exact proportion, but again, this is going to go into your sweet styles of sherry production. If I'm not mistaken, Muscat of Alexandria is mostly a aromatic grape, Uh so it adds in a lot of the aromas that are going to be inside of the sherry. Mm -hmm. 
outside of what dominates it, which is going to be the fermentation and then the aging style, yeah. which is a very unique style. Mm-hmm. So once we have our grapes, what separates this fermentation style from, from others? Because I know it's a little bit different. Yeah, so these are run at a pretty high for white wines fermentation, if you remember way, way back in our winemaking episode, which we plan to redo because we're not quite happy with it now. That's more getting into what a, like a low red wine fermentation mm-hmm. would be, a low temperature red wine fermentation would be. So like around that 65 to 78. Mm-hmm. Or a 20 to 25 Celsius mm-hmm. for our European listeners. Thank you again very much for your patronage. We also had what was what was the uh, one that we had? We had Vietnam show had up Vietnam. on the last episode. Thank yeah. you so much. Very yeah, very exciting to see people from all around the world. Not something we ever expected, really. Uh, anyway, but yeah, so this is a relatively high temperature for a white wine fermentation, and that will make a wine that has even less character from that fermentation you're trying to get this palomino grape as neutral as you possibly can mm. and that is what this higher fermentation will do because a lot of those more delicate aromas and compounds are going to blow off during that fermentation so that's why you're doing it at this higher temperature so once these grapes are fermented you have what's called your first classification it happens in the autumn of the harvest year right after these are done fermenting and, you know, each year you're going to have a little bit of a different variation. And depending on what vineyard these wines are coming from, they're going to have a little bit of different character. Your lighter wines are going to be sent into a biological style of aging. Your heavier wines are going to be sent to your oxidative okay. styles of aging. So during the first classification, we are separating it out into the two main styles mm-hmm. of aging, which is going to separate out into two basically subcategories of mm-hmm. sherry. Yeah. And we will be getting into here in a second what biological and oxidative means. To have you understand that point well enough, we need to cover a little bit more. So what sort of things are they looking for in the things that they are going to be biologically aging? So this is where what's called floor comes in. Floor is a colony of yeast that will begin to form on these wines, and that is desired. You want these these yeast to develop. How the floor is developing is probably the biggest indicator. If the floor is developing, you know, well, it's healthy, it's strong, that is going to go into your biological aging. If it's not developing as well, that will go into your oxidative aging. Also, you have to keep in mind as a producer what your house style is. You have to keep in mind your production output. Let's say you have a ton of wines in that particular year that could go into a biological aging solera, but you need to replenish your oxidative styles. Some of them are just going to go into oxidative aging. That also plays a big factor is just Mm. what you need for production that year. So if it hasn't though, then, or even if it has and you decided that it needs to go into the oxidative style, Mm -hmm. what is the next step that separates those two from each other? Immediately, the difference is going to be primarily what they're fortified to. From their ABV percentage. The wines that are fortified are going to be sent into what's called a sobretabla, which is uh, basically a holding vessel for a Solera system. Biological aging wines are going to be fortified to normally 15%. It can go up to 15.5%. We're going to talk about floor more in depth here in a second. That plays into what the floor can survive in. 
Also, wines that are sent for biological aging will spend a decent amount of time in this sobre tabla. So that way, it's kind of a a another check to make sure this is really appropriate for biological aging. So they're looking for whatever that winemaker thinks are the characteristics that they want in their biologically aged sherries that, like, that they want to put into that Solera. Yeah, because like if you accidentally put the wrong wine inside of your Solera system, there's not a way of getting it out. Exactly. Uh, and that will make a lot more sense here in a second. Mm, mm. Your wines that are destined for oxidative aging are going to be fortified up to 17%. The floor cannot survive at that alcohol percentage, so it will it will not form at all. And I'm guessing that's fairly intentional because you wouldn't want both floor and oxidative aging to be happening at the same time. Correct. Yeah, Yeah, that would probably do some really awful things to a wine. And and it wouldn't even, and we'll we'll be getting into this, it's not even really possible for that to happen unless you have like really weak floor maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't even think that it would really be possible to do that. Really? from From a just how these wines are made perspective. And for your sweet styles, these, again, they're so sweet when they come into the winery that the yeast will struggle to ferment them at all. So normally you only really get a couple of percentage of ABV on a sweet style of wine before it is fortified, and then it is fortified to typically 17%. So, a Solera system. What is this thing that we have been talking about? So this Solera system is what seems to be what truly defines sherry yes that and just the surrounding influences and how it interacts with those surrounding influences including those westerly winds from the atlantic your easterly winds from the heartland of spain Mm -hmm. yeah what what is going on with the solaris system how is this fashion because i know that it's kind of like a multi-level aging process where you have different things from different years Mm -hmm. being blended together until you get to your desired notes your desired mm-hmm. profile yeah this system this solera system is going to be made up of a solera which is going to be a group of 600 liter barrels they're called butts in in a solera system so these 600 liter butts they're also typically old you don't want these for new oak flavor you want them for oxidation only really mm. or if you're doing biologically aging there is still some oxygen airplay that will happen there but you just don't really want any any flavor imparted. You want that from the floor in a biologically aged Solera. So the system. floor is really taking the center stage for all of this. For biological aging, yes. And then aside from your Solera, you have wines that are grouped together in Criaderas. Now, how this works is your Solera is going to be the oldest average age of wine. And then the Criaderas are going to be grouped in progressively younger groups of average age of wine. So your first Criadera is going to be the first youngest after your Solera. The second Criadera is going to be even younger still, going back and back and back. How are they arranged visually? So this is kind of a big topic in and of itself, so I'll try and be concise and, and quick about it. A lot of producers will keep these actually in separate warehouses. Mm. to avoid if something happens to a warehouse to avoid losing all of their Soleras. So they just go ahead and they have them grouped together mm-hmm. by documentation and property yes. as yeah. opposed to actually grouping them together mm-hmm. physically. If you see the way that these are typically graphed out, you would think that they're stored in levels in a warehouse going progressively younger as you get towards the top. That is not how it works in, in the real world. 
they are grouped together typically by that criadera, or at least they're labeled very thoroughly, but they are not necessarily stored together. And again, they can even be stored in different facilities by the same producer as a as kind of a way of insurance for mm. something catastrophic to happen to one of them or one of their facilities, I should say. Again, these criaderas are are grouped by average age of wine. Now, what this all means, so if you're a little confused, hopefully this will clear it up. When you have a Solera system and you pull off the Solera to have the wine in the Solera, so remember the Solera is going to be your oldest group in this system, if you pull wine off from bottling, you're going to pull from all the butts equally and put that in, um, you know, a a vat and mix it all together. Then you're going to pull off equal amounts from each criadera individually, mix them together, and then replace the one that you originally drew from, right? So what that means is, let's say I draw 500 liters from each of these barrels in the final Solera, right? Then I'm going to pull 500 liters off of my first criadera, put that in a vat, mix it together, and replenish the Solera with the missing 500 liters. I'm going to do with the second criadera into the first criadera, what I did from the first criadera to the solera, and then all the way back to, again, the sobre tabla. That's how you replenish the wine in this system, and that is why these wines are based off of average age. They are not vintage wines. There really isn't a way to give a, a true age, quote-unquote, on these wines. How old can you get that system before you have to replace it entirely? So for your oxidative styles, decades. For your biologically aged styles, typically you're only going to be doing around four years for this system. We're going to talk about floor more in depth here in a second. That has to do with the health of the floor. So hopefully that all makes sense. Did I do a good job? No, I think that that's pretty good. I I hope that uh, the questions help because they were legitimate questions from me. The reason this system is set up in the way it is is for a couple of reasons. So if you've been paying attention, you understand that barrels that are old, that still allow oxygen to play, will change the flavors of these grapes. The floor, again, will impart their own flavors for the biological styles. The oxidative styles tend to go much longer in the Solera to really oxidize these wines. As I said earlier, like your Olorosos, which are an oxidatively aged style of sherry, tend to be brown by the time they come out. That's mm-hmm. how long they have spent in these barrels. This this really ensures a consistent style of what you're making from a producer. Because these are... There's so many steps where the wine is re-blended together and then reintroduced. It's You're kind of getting all of the wine in that Solera that's ever been in that Solera, and it creates a very specific style. And so then you can really have like a very clear house style and a very consistent house style. So people are wanting to be seen by name and recognized for mm-hmm. what they bring to the table. Yes. As you said, this is another reason why you have to, and part of the reason why, particularly for these biologically aged wines, there's so many steps where they're checking to make sure that these are good for biological aging. As you can probably deduce, if you put a mediocre or a bad wine into this Solera system, it's going to stay in that Solera system, and you're going to lower the quality of your wine overall as long as that Solera system is in use. Especially since you mentioned this stuff is evenly distributed mm-hmm. into the system, into the criaderas. 
Yes. And then into the Soleras every single time that they pull any of it. Yes. Oof. In terms of the number of Criaderas, it can vary from like four all the way up to 14. I, I don't think they go much above that, but you can go over 10. Again, that's a producer decision, what they're going for. Now, the bodegas themselves, we haven't mentioned at this point. They are very fascinating as far as their architectural design in yeah. order to age these things. Yeah. So before we move forward, just a quick description of them. They are designed with the wind in mind. It is very hot. You don't want it to be super, super hot inside of your bodega. So they are created with very high roofs, typically with an open ceiling. The ceiling mm-hmm. leads to, you know, the air above, the sky above. And there are painless windows throughout the entire thing. These are designed to capture the wind that's coming in, integrate it into the flavors of the sherry as it's aging, and also to ventilate them as kind of like a air conditioning uh, system. Mm-hmm. in order to do this i highly recommend if you haven't done so i may end up posting on one of our social accounts just what these places look like they yeah. are gorgeous they look like magic they're also normally the walls are normally painted white to reflect heat out because you also want to keep it cool if you can particularly biological styles the floor doesn't want it too hot or too cold it wants the perfect amount of humidity uh, you also typically have earthen floors to kind of trap heat as well So as far as the biological process is, how is it that the floor is reacting in such a unique way in order to produce the flavors that that we experience inside of these biologically aged sherries? Yeah, so again, a floor is a kind or several strains actually of yeast that will develop a layer on top of a barrel of sherry or you know when it's in the vat as i said earlier they are checking for the development of floor something i think i forgot to mention is in a solera system you only fill your barrels up about five six of the way you do not fill up your barrel all the way part of that especially for this biological style is so that way this floor can develop that layer on top of the wine and i do mean it's it's a layer it's actually like a you can see it it's probably about a quarter inch thick from from pictures I've seen Oof. of it, of this yeast layer that just covers the entire thing. So this floor feeds off of both the oxygen that is in that barrel kind of on, on the top above the wine, and it also feeds off of the alcohol and the nutrients in the wine itself. That is what keeps it going. So the layer, since it is kind of eating the oxygen, it prevents oxygen from getting into the wine. Again, the barrel will kind of allow some oxygen interplay in there, but these styles of wine are not aged for nearly as long as the oxidative styles are. So you're not getting really the oxidative notes per se. Some some oxidative character, again, will come in from that oxygen interplay, but because it's not aged for super long, it's not the forefront of the wine. That's not what they're going for. The wine does need to be topped up pretty regularly. Um, As we talked about earlier in this podcast, there's what's called the angel share where stuff evaporates out. Also, the floor, as I said, since it's eating both the alcohol and some of the nutrients in the wine, you need to top it off to make sure that the floor stays alive Mm. or else it'll just eat everything up and it'll die off. And that is part of why, as I mentioned, this kind of Solaris system, this biological aging Solaris system, does not go for much longer than four years normally is because seven is kind of the maximum you can get. But 
after that, the wine just gets old enough to where it's depleted from nutrients, even if you are adding in more wine. And the floor just can't survive anymore and it starts to die off. So again, these are very relatively young on the average age versus your oxidative Solera systems. Mm. So that kind of covers floor. So then we move on to our oxidative ones. And basically, if you've listened to our podcast for a while, you, you know what this means. There's a very heavy oxygen interplay. These, again, are not filled up all the way to even more increase oxygen exposure. This also increases the ABV for long enough um sometimes they can hit above 20% and remember they started out at 17 that's a significant change over the course of time yeah so this style is very heavily oxygen exposed let's say and in, during its time in the barrel also something that is true for all sherries is that even though there is all this blending that happens within one solera system most producers will blend across all of their Solera systems for a Fino Sherry or an Oloroso Sherry. This will make sure, again, that it's consistent across all of it, because even different warehouses will produce a very slightly different character in the wine. This can also be used kind of how blending works in most other styles of wine, where you are trying to create a specific profile and maybe balance out things that are lacking in a wine. So mm. something that's very popular for Olorosos or very highly uh, extended aged sherries will be to mix in a younger wine to introduce some freshness back into the wine because it, it, you can hit a point where it's so aged for so long that there's really no brightness to the wine anymore. Mm. It's all just that deep, dark flavor. And as much as I love that deep, dark flavor... Sometimes it can it feel is, a little dead. Sometimes it is nice to have a lift to There's it. There's a so. reason why we add chives to eggs. Yes. You know, we you have to have that that little bit of a lift in order to actually give some character to your wine. And it gives contrast to those deeper flavors as well. Mm -hmm. Yes. So that is our blending stage, and that again will happen basically right before it's bottled. So is there anything uh, as far as bottle aging with sherry, or is no, it done? No, as soon as you get a sherry, particularly these lighter styles, it's best to drink it pretty quickly. If it's a like a cooking sherry, you can keep that kind of indefinitely. But if, if you're using like what we're drinking right now, which is a manzanilla, which we'll be getting into what that means in a second here, it is biologically aged. You can keep this open for much longer than you would a standard wine, but I would still drink it fairly soon after opening. The oxidative styles will keep pretty much indefinitely without losing any brightness, so you don't really have to worry about that as much. So getting into the different styles of wine that are produced by this, we have the biological ones, which are, are separated out into... A couple of our, our different ones, we're actually drinking one that is a biological wine. Mm -hmm. And then you also have the oxidative ones. You'll be able to tell immediately when you are walking in the store whether it was aged one way or another just by the names themselves, which yeah. we'll go over now. So you have uh, Fino. Mm -hmm. Fino is going to be a bit more on the nutty side, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. A lot of these will show more nutty characteristics in general. The Fino, though... It's going to have a good deal of brightness to it, mm -hmm. um, but the thing that separates it is more just a variance in... So, kind of the main difference, I would say, between what Michael is saying about the Fino and what we're drinking right now, which is a Manzanilla, is, well, for one thing, Manzanilla 
must come from that town of San Lucar de uh, Barameda, which is now its own domain, uh, domain de la Origen. Yes, they I forget how recently it was that they made it into that, but it is so refined now yeah. that it, it's become its own thing. And it's the only one for Sherry in the entire world. So what kind of sets this apart from regular Finos is because this is a coastal town, it's much more humid and it is a little bit cooler from ocean breezes that are coming in to the bodegas. And for one thing, the bodegas are carrying very saline air. Fino Sherry's can also be quite saline. Yeah, a lot of them coming from Jerez de la Frontera. But that has a lot more influence from the mainland as far as heat yeah. is concerned. And a lot of it also comes from the floor. For both of these styles, the floor really also does impart a salty flavor. And your manzanillas, though, because of the humidity and the cooler temperatures, the floor is able to flourish a lot more than it does in Jerez because of just the temperature and climate difference. So these are, are more influenced by the floor. So you get a little bit more complexity from that flavor profile. A bit more of that breadiness, that mm -hmm. citrusy note. Yeah. Herbal, some nuttiness going on, particularly yeah. almonds. Almonds are a very uh, prominent note in both Fino and Manzanilla sherries. Mm -hmm. Now, there is a style of sherry that is kind of a go-between for biological and oxidative aging. That is your Amontillados. That is not just a story that, you know... Edgar Allan Poe wrote about. <laughs> um, th this is a style of wine. What makes this kind of sherry very special is it retains characters of both oxidative and biological aging. And that is because this wine starts its life out as a biologically aged sherry that would be a fino otherwise. Then it is fortified up to 17%. And then it is allowed to finish its time in the Solera as an oxidatively aged wine. Fascinating. Yeah. So we almost ended up getting one of these mm -hmm. for the tasting today, but we decided on the other one because it sounded more romantic. Yeah. <laughs> um, and these, these can start to get into like some hazelnut flavors and some of that darker flavor, not nearly as much as your Oloroso. It's also not going to be nearly as full bodied as your Oloroso. And it will still retain some of that lightness and freshness and some of that like citrusy character. It's of the floor character. The floor character isn't quite as retained as some of the other flavors, but it is still it's still there in an Amontillado. But that is kind of a go-between for the styles. So what about the oxidative wines? Because these are probably the ones that I have more experience with. A lot of the people that came in to purchase any form of sherry were typically going for more of these mm -hmm. styles yeah. when they were purchasing. And also, these ended up being the ones that paired the best, at least with the chocolates mm -hmm. that I was serving at our tastings. Which makes a lot of sense. So your oxidative styles are going to start with Oloroso. So your Olorosos are going to be, again, they're typically brown, very dark wines. They're going to have toffee, leather, some spices, some nuttiness, but maybe not quite as much almond, but think like walnuts, uh, pecans, stuff like that. Those darker, heavier, more oily nuts. Mm. And again, all that's coming from how much oxygen has been exposed to these wines. You also have, as we discussed in our Dessert Wines episode, your PX, Pedro Jimenez, and your Muscat of Alexandria, sweet wines that are naturally sweet from being fortified from concentrated grapes. Then you have your cream sherries. Now, cream sherries, we kind of skipped over the different kinds of cream sherries in the sweet wines episode, but we'll be going more into them here. You have your pale cream, which is made from biologically aged sherry. These retain very little floor character in them. 
These are typically not sweetened with PX wine like the other two styles are. They are typically sweetened with that rectified concentrated grape must that we Mm. talked about in that episode, which is, again, a grape juice concentrate that literally just adds sweetness. It doesn't really add anything else. Then we go into our medium sherries, which are basically like an Amontillado, but add PX to it. It's oxidative and biological, uh, not going to be quite as heavy as your full cream. And your full cream is a fully oxidative sherry with that PX wine added into it to sweeten it up. Mm -hmm. Again, these are going to get much more into your darker nuts, some chocolate, some leather, things like that. Goes excellently with milk chocolate. Yeah. Yeah. I actually paired it with uh, Ferrero Rocher's. Ooh. Yeah. Their their chocolates, which have Nutella in the center, and they were absolutely delicious. Yeah. That sounds really nice. Oh, it was so good. Last thing for any kind of legal stuff with sherry is age indications on a sherry. Now, age indications can only show up on Amontillado's. Palocortados, which we did not talk about because they're very rare, but they are similar to an Amontillado, but they are fuller bodied, kind of more along the lines of an Oloroso, and they're a lot richer, but they do still kind of maintain that Amontillado character. There's a couple ways you can achieve that. I'm not familiar with all of them, but again, these wines are super rare and they're typically very high quality um, and therefore very expensive. So that, that style does exist and that can be an age indicator on the bottle for those. Oloroso and Pedro Jimenez wines can also Mm. have an age indicator. Now, what does that mean when you see it? On a very old rare sherry, or VORS, the average age... I love how straightforward that acronym (laughs) is. Just VORS. The the average age of the blend of that wine must be 30 years old. So this is a very extensively aged wine. In your very old sherry, or VOS, it is the same thing, but bump it down to 20 years Mm. instead of 30. The other two categories are your 12 and your 15-year-old sherries. This applies to the average age of the Solera rather than the blend of the wine itself. So Mm. there's a little bit more leeway with these. These, again, are typically high-quality wines, but just not quite on the level that these very old sherries are going to be. Mm. What sort of uh, notes can we expect from older sherries as opposed to the younger ones? Is it just going to be more punchiness to the flavors? Or Yeah, it, it's going to be, again, much higher in the alcohol content. So that's something to look out for because of how much is going to evaporate out during the process of aging that wine. And you're right, much more uh, dark, heavy notes. These are wines that, yes, you will start finding some younger wines blended in to keep some brightness going. but Essentially what you just said, just kind of expect more concentration and and depth of flavor from those wines. And obviously they're going, if they're going to be making it, they're going to be making a very high quality wine, kind of the best they can produce. Have you ever had a VORS or VOS? (laughs) No. How much, what was the price range look like on those? Um, I'm not super familiar off the top of my head, but from my excursions into the local stores around here, I can't even find them. So. I can't give you a price that I haven't seen, and I'm assuming that that means that it is a high price tag. Yeah, that's probably a safe bet. We were lucky enough to be able to go to a place called Second Bottle today. Uh, They're up in Church Hill. Yep. 
It was a lovely little shop. Definitely want to give them a shout out. They yeah. are also on Instagram. You should definitely take a look at them if you haven't. They mm, seem to have fairly new. Yeah, they're they're pretty new. We were able to take a look at their selection. It looks like it's very well curated. Yeah. Very cute spot. They have a bunch of curated items that you can pair with the wines. The wines themselves have handwritten descriptions on all of them. Lots of canned fish. Yes, lots of canned fish. And a, uh, oh gosh, I meant to actually come home with it, a burgundy mustard. Oh, right. You did. I should have. buying that. I should have come home with that because that's literally good on anything. Yeah. Uh, no, this was, I was actually very impressed by their selection. They clearly, from what I can tell, they have good distributors that they're working with. They had wines that I'm not familiar with, but looked from, you know, the regions that they were selecting from and from the kinds of wine that they were yeah. selecting looked like they definitely had an eye for for quality wine. But honestly, I don't I don't really remember seeing a bottle over forty dollars in the store. I mean, I'm sure that they have some. Yeah, there, there were a couple there, but a lot of them were moderately priced. Yeah, most of them are in your twenty to thirty range, which like or twenty to forty range, I should say. And that Maybe to some people isn't the most affordable, but for the bottles that were there, um, I think personally that I thought that that was a very fair price range that they're working with. Would you say that you're satisfied for the, uh, with the price that we paid for this Manzanilla? Yes. So this was $31, No, right? this, was, this was the cheaper bottle. This oh, was this, $30. This, so this is $30. A whole dollar. A whole dollar. Uh, no, I am. I'm so happy with this yeah. wine. This is fantastic. Uh, we... Ended up going for the Manzanilla Posada uh, from Pastrana, primarily because there was one thing on the description that fascinated both of us, that it came from a single vineyard. Correct. So I have never tried a Manzanilla before. So this was uh, virgin territory for me. We mm -hmm. also ended up getting a small assortment of cheese, including an assortment of blue cheeses and uh, some different cheeses that Gabe ended up selecting. Yeah. Gabe is a, or was a cheesemonger. I was. So he was able to select out a couple here that are particularly good. So uh, right off the bat, the nose gave us a lot of nutty flavors, mm -hmm. almond, walnut. We also got some citrus notes going on there. Yeah, there's some herbal character to this wine. More on your dried herb side than your fresh herb side. Mm, most definitely. Kind of think herbs de Provence or even maybe your dried Italian herbs kind of hanging in a in a kitchen in Europe. Yeah, that's that's good visualization actually. <laughs> There's also a little bit of salinity to it, which mm -hmm. has dropped off a little bit since it's, it's been sitting. It's still pretty cuz I I've, I've been sipping on this as we've been talking. It, it is still very much there on the palate. Um kind of very a, much on the palate. Kind of a, a ocean breeze funkiness, but it, very pleasant. Yeah, with a lot of lemon that lingers for forever. This mm -hmm. has probably one of the longest finishes of any wine that I've had. Th this finish is eternal. Yeah. Etern it, it's gone right past all of the designations. Yeah. For it. It's <laughs> eternal. No, th this really links. There's, um, and again, so remember Palomino is a low acid grape. That means that this wine is going to be much more, um, weighty and kind of viscous on the palate and maybe kind of oily. And this, yeah. this is kind of an oily wine. That doesn't sound appealing, but I promise you that it's, it's not, it's not like drinking olive oil. Don't get me wrong. But it, it just sits. It sits on your palate. It kind of has this viscous character that really um, kind of just clings to your tongue. I would say because of the salinity and because of that more lemony mm -hmm. flavor, it really does balance out that oily texture a bit. Yeah. Which is uh, a nutty type 
of mm-hmm. oil. It, it's kind of like your your straight olive oil. Yeah. Not as um, clumpy as no. that. Yeah. But because of that salinity, because of that citrusy note, it really comes across as balanced. Yeah. Now, we also got cheeses, as we said, and all of them are very good, but some of them really stood out amongst the other ones. Uh, Michael, you're going to have to remind me on your blue cheese names because I don't remember them off the top yeah, of my head. I got, I got Gabe turned on to blue cheese. Well, you got me turned on to one at least. Uh, <laughs> at least two. So the cheeses I chose were a cave-aged white cheddar, a cheese called Comte, and Mimolette, uh, which Mimolette is very similar to kind of like a medium-aged Gouda. Actually, I believe, if I remember correctly, this how Mimlet is made is almost exactly the same as Gouda, but it has an auto added into it. I chose three different blue cheeses. One of them... A little bit of overkill, but you know. You know, you can never have too much blue cheese. Well, <laughs> I'm a blue cheese fan. I was turned on to blue cheeses by the uh, movie Snow Dogs when it was revealed that the commonality that he had with his father, who is estranged from him, was indeed that they both liked blue cheese. In a plot point that will forever haunt me as being better than anything I could write. Uh, <laughs> Give yourself a little more credit. You know, honestly, I, I loved that movie for the dogs back when I was a kid. But the ones that are really good, I'm not going to say the other one because I'm not sure what's going on with it. It's, it's a very creamy style. Yeah, it's a very creamy style of blue cheese. It concerned me a little bit when I tasted it because of its intensity. So I won't name that one, but the other one that I got was uh, Campazola, Black Label, and Cashel Blue. Cashel Blue being a lovely smoky flavor. This is yeah. the one that completely took Gabe by surprise. It, it really did. As I, I mentioned before on the podcast, I am not a blue cheese guy, but that one, again, it's smoky, and pretty much any smoky cheese I am a sucker for, particularly like smoked Gouda, smoked cheddars, what have you. And that pairs beautifully with the Manzanilla. Every time I taste it, I'm just getting flashbacks to Avon Beach mm-hmm. and the Outer Banks. So part of what makes, in my opinion, these lighter styles of sherry, these biologically aged styles, these finos, these manzanillas, so great for cheeses is these are kind of salty. Cheese is typically kind of salty. It has complexity, but it is a complexity that is still light enough to pair well with an assortment of cheeses. So you've had blue cheese, so you kind of know the profile of blue cheese. And again, these blue cheeses do vary a little bit, but there are still blue cheeses. So, you know, we paired it with a cheddar. The cheddar, actually, the cheddar is probably lower on the scale for what I liked with the wine in particular. Um, Not because it was bad, just because it didn't kind of blow my mind like the Comte did. The Comte is delicious with this. Yeah. It explodes in the back of your palate. And it really, so there's a little bit, we forgot to mention, there's a little bit of a sweetness on this manzanilla. Don't, Don't think like sugary sweetness, but kind of like a sweet nut oil, almost like hazelnut oil or walnut oil, maybe. And with the Comte, it really draws out some of that sweetness because the Comte is a cheese that if you've had Telegio or Appalachian cheese, it's similar to those in that it has a very tangy, almost kind of musty character. And I know people probably just heard me say musty, and (laughs) I probably should not use that to describe food. Think uh, 
think like wet stone underground like that's what i mean like with a velvety texture no less yeah like think of like you're walking into an old cellar an old like stone or concrete cellar and kind of just that mustiness it's a it's a very pleasant smell and aroma to me personally i really like this style of cheese overall again it's kind of tangy very yeah it's like tangy but clean yes and again mimolette is basically gouda um a kind of like a somewhat aged gouda that pairs really well with honestly the it looks like cantaloupe <laughs> it's very orange it is very orange that is how you'll know um but it, it's delicious i love it and it's very salty so salt typically makes any wine taste better as for pairing wine with this cheese, honestly, I would say any cheese that kind of has a bit more of a complex character to it, I would not pair this with like brie or mozzarella. So cheese, I would say with maybe a bit more of a tangy, funky character and some decent salt content would be a great pairing for a fino sherry. If you want to go to an oxidative style, maybe go maybe go with your brie's uh, or your creamier, richer styles, or maybe not quite a cave age cheddar but a young cheddar those i think would be styles of cheese or a smoked gouda actually i think would go very well with an oloroso because it's kind of sweet but it still maintains its own character we kind of wanted to do this to show you sherry's are people talk about wine and cheese this is for me like the cheese wine and I the, love this and wine the heat with cheese. Does a lot for it. Mm-hmm. The increase in alcohol percentage is part of what's causing the chemical reactions in your mouth that allow these flavors and aromas to bloom so much. Uh, so that is one thing, especially with your cream sherries and chocolate. The heat coming off of it, the actual alcohol reacting with the oils inside of the chocolate, is what creates that pairing opportunity. It's a chemical reaction. But when you also have these flavors pairing so well with each other, that reaction is capitalized on. Fantastic stuff. Yeah. This is the bread and butter to me as far as pairing goes. And I'm really just loving this wine. We are very happy. Yeah. I don't don't even really have anything else to say anymore. Yeah, I'm happy. (laughs) We're going to sit here and we're going to eat this cheese board. We're probably going to have some pizza here in a second. Yeah. And drink this manzanilla. Yeah. So... Yeah, thank you so much for joining us today. Like I oh. said, oh, 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 we oh. forgot to mention something. Bus. So we haven't hit it yet, but by the time this episode is out, oh my gosh, you're we, correct. We will have definitely hit 200 downloads, which is actually just go ahead and look it up. We were not expecting it to be this quick after we hit 100 downloads. I mean, I get that it's you know still been. A while. Yeah, we only have we only have three more downloads to go. Oh my goodness. Um, so thank you guys so much for, yeah. for listening. That's a very exciting number. Again, we we said it before, but we did not start this podcast with any kind of following or anything. So I wasn't expecting to to yeah. hit this in the amount of time that it's taken to hit it. I, I was expecting us to stay in obscurity and just have this as a passion project to be perfectly honest and the fact that we have gotten the response that we have it makes me so deeply grateful yeah so thank you guys so much for listening we love doing this we love being able to share our experience of wine gabe and his knowledge me and my my fresh takes (laughs) uh and we so appreciate you joining us in the middle of this we cannot do this without you yeah And we so enjoy doing this. So thank you so much for listening to us. Absolutely. And if you haven't already, follow us at (laughs) LaidBackLush on Instagram and Twitter. 
because that lets us know that you love us. Yes. And we love you. So I've been Michael. I have been Gabe. Cheers. Cheers.